Hey everyone, we had a little disturbance on Zero's audio in this episode as she competed with the soundtrack from an NFT party. We did our best to clean it up, but you'll still hear it as the episode progresses. And the bottom line is that Zero is a great guest and NFTs suck. Enjoy the show! Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Chekhov's jump scare doll. We're talking misogyny and transphobia. And we're talking Rob Zombie's house. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we are talking one Cuckoo Bananas twist in the middle of this movie. Ah, uh, is it that Cuckoo Bananas? No. No, it's not. <laughs> no, but I will admit that it did get me on a first viewing, even though right. uh, when you rewatch it, it is telegraphed uh, very far in advance. It is, but for that reason, I almost appreciate it because it doesn't feel like the film is waiting until the very end to be like, gotcha. No, oh, I, I agree. If this was done in the third act, like it would have, like I think it would have hurt the film. But it, anyway, everyone, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, we are discussing our second Pascal Logier film, of course, he of the uh, Martyrs fame, mm -hmm. in Ghostland or Incident in a Ghostland, depending on where you live. <laughs> That's true. Is it Ghostland for you folks? Um, it is no i think it's incident in a ghost land but i think it might be ghost land no it is ghost land you know what i don't know i watched it last night <laughs> <laughs> that was a journey thank you for going on. I, I was like it was on netflix what was it under netflix but I, th I think it's incident in a ghost land i think that's what it is but right good times good times good times good times but yeah as you said there's um there are some problematic some controversial things i think there are some good things in this movie but I think we need another voice to help us sort through this because, who boy, um, it's only 90 minutes, but there's a lot mm -hmm. here, so. Indeed. Everyone. She is a New York City-based content creator dedicated to the horror, sci-fi, and dark fantasy realms, and she is one-third of the Blurdy Massacre podcast with previous guests, Brother Ghoulish, see last year's episode on Candyman, and mm -hmm. Sheree Bohannon, last week's episode in Wake and Fright. Yep. <laughs> Please welcome Zero Gravity. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah! <laughs> Thank you for coming on to Ghostland. She's coming in with big energy for a weird movie. <laughs> Zero, so this was your first time watching this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, wait. Okay. Do tell. We're going to obviously pick apart this movie piece by piece, but what were your thoughts on this movie? Um, You know, I want to... Okay, so you mentioned just now that... The twist was pretty twisty upon first watch. Mm -hmm. That was my main takeaway after watching this film. There are a handful, like a generous handful of things uh, in this film that kind of bother me. But yeah. I don't know. I can appreciate a, a decent twist when it presents itself. Um, so I'm going to focus on that part and we'll talk about the rest. You okay. know, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's fair. That's very fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joe, this is also your first time watching this, I believe. 
It was indeed. Yeah, we have had this on the list, I think, since the beginning when we were compiling a list of different films that we could potentially cover. Mm -hmm. And it was weird because I feel like I've had it in the back of my mind as, oh, this is the one with the problematic trans reveal. Mm -hmm. So I've always known to kind of be on the lookout or I've associated the film with that. And then Obviously, there's another controversy, which you will go into when we talk about the production history. Yes. So I've, I've never even thought about this as a movie so much as a controversial figure <laughs> that I knew we would have to discuss. And it's interesting because I feel like it's actually not as controversial as a lot of the reviews made it out to be. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think it's also because we've seen way worse and it's it's more that its timing is very ill-advised, but I will save some of that for later. Yeah, l- let's save some of that for later. Um, and yeah, again, yeah, everyone, this is our, we have covered Martyrs in the past. I would recommend you go back and listen to that episode of the show, because I think Joe and I have a really good borderline philosophical conversation about that movie, which mm-hmm. the movie invites. It does. This film, question mark. Question mark. No, I I, I have things that I think about. Th- I, I think this movie's a lot of sh- schlock and schlock value that okay i well you know what we'll save it we'll <laughs> sorry <laughs> we'll save everything <laughs> i hate it when podcasters do that but i'm like yeah I, i'm trying to save it so why don't we go into the production of this movie oh actually you know, i'm sorry but zero do you have any relationship with this director have you seen martyrs have you seen uh the tall man with jessica beale I haven't seen The Tall Man, but I am a fan of Martyrs. In fact, I actually just bought a graphic tee Ooh. surrounding Martyrs, and I'm very excited for it to be shipped to me. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> we'll rip this one apart. We'll see how I feel about Martyrs later. Right. Yeah, that's true. I, I will take this one and only moment, because Joe will always will get mad at me if I keep doing it, but I will recommend The Tall Man. I think it is a really good movie um, that also has one of those like middle-of-the-movie twists. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, like the movie is completely becoming an entirely different film. If you choose to watch it, please be aware that while Jessica Biel is amazing in it, the movie is not exactly what I would call a horror film, despite right. being marketed as such. But it is... A very scathing social commentary, which, again, I think we see that in some of that in Martyrs, some of that in Tall Man, and then not a ton of that here, which I think maybe is where a lot of people have issues with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, okay, well, why don't we go into why, why this movie was made, okay? And feel free to interrupt at any time if something I say, uh, I don't know, shocks you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, most of this, I'm sorry, some of this is going to be pulled from an interview with Logier himself uh, in Remork. It's called Horror and Transcendence, an interview with Pascal Logier. And this is an interview with Robin Ono. So... Pascal Logier wanted to tell a story of two sisters because he has an older brother and their relationship is in many ways similar to that of the two girls in this movie, Beth and Vera, uh, symbolically speaking, which immediately, because we're going to be talking about misogyny in this film, um, I have to ask, why did he make them girls if it was based symbolically on that of him and his brother? Yeah, it's a little bit of a weird decision, isn't it? I I almost wonder if he was trying to say it's not autobiographical so i don't want to just do my own story but then i think that maybe gets him into some problems i think so given what happens to these characters and if it's based on his uh, again not again symbolically based on his relationship with his brother Mm -hmm. he actively chose to make it women and therefore violence against women so again i can see those arguments and like i can see like the ground they stand on but your mileage may vary 
Um, he was interested in diving into this subject and wanted to make a film on the imaginary, on what it means to be creative and to have this calling. So the plot came to him gradually once he came up with the twist. So I think that's a really interesting thing too, right? Because how many times do we critique films with a big twist and say, well, it just sounds like they had the twist and wrote the movie around that, which is exactly what happened here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He wrote the film in four months, sent it to a few producers, and quickly found out that everyone wanted to make it. Well, everyone except France. (laughs) (laughs) Ghostland did wind up being a a Canadian and French co-production, with Canada providing about 70% of the funding and France providing 30% of the funding. So... A year later, he was shooting in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which um, for any Americans there, that is right above North Dakota and Minnesota. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very cold place, but you can get some really good tax breaks. Yes, exactly. Uh, But why Winnipeg outside of those tax breaks you mentioned, Joe? So, okay, I'm paraphrasing him here, but let me go into this. So apparently he had fully given up on the idea of making the kinds of movies he makes, meaning really violent uh, uh, horror films, Mm -hmm. in French. Yep. He's done two films like that, 2004's St. Ange, which I have not seen, and 2008's Martyrs, which obviously we have both seen. Mm-hmm. He believes that you would need a major paradigm shift to make French audiences watch these films in their mother tongue, because the French public has been brought up to believe that art house films or comedies are French, and that movies that fall into the quote-unquote genre category are necessarily American. Right. So... While it's true that the new French extremity movement was incredibly well-received overseas, and again, y'all, I'm on top of the Martyrs episode, um, we're going to reference our episode on Calvair again. Mm-hmm. Please go back and listen to that episode and hear us discuss more of the new French extremity. Right. And we also talked about high tension when we guested on a bloody, disgusting sister pod, Nightlife. Yes. I love that movie. (laughs) See, that's a problematic one too, Zero. Uh, I don't like that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I I understand. I know exactly what you're thinking right now. Yeah, no, look, you're going to hate me. It's not even like the killer lesbian stuff. I just, narratively speaking, that twist makes mm-hmm. no fucking sense. <laughs> well, and I I think it's an interesting point that we can raise when we get to the twist here yes. in this plot because we can talk about the benefits of doing it at the end of the first act versus doing it at the very end of the film. Yes, I fully agree with that. I'm also in zero just to like put to kind of paint a picture. I'm really not a fan of being shown something that isn't actually happening that's a blanket statement but like i i put the <laughs> sorry because obviously that's what happens here but like uh the thing in high tension i liken it to the same kind of twist in the remake of my bloody valentine where it's like we are seeing a whole scene where this supposedly happens and it's revealed at the end of the movie oops that did it was all in their head i really i really don't like that but anyway so while that movement was incredibly well received overseas or at least with interest um without the overseas market the filmmakers who were part of that new french extremity movement would have um pretty much made one or two films and call it quits so thankfully some french producers eventually picked up on what was happening and came up to them to make some more films which helped them a lot if they had counted solely on the french market and on the french press they'd all be out of jobs again this is all according to logier right Because of this, Loger believes that he and his horror filmmaker colleagues have been essentially forced into exile and to pretend that they are North American filmmakers, even though they are all French directors. And for an analogy, he compares their situation to those of the Italian directors in the 60s who went under American pen names to pretend that their films were shot in Hollywood rather than Rome. So Hmm. 
he really has it out against the French people for <laughs> for not wanting to see his movies. <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? I mean, we've seen a similar narrative in other national cinemas. Like, I can say the same of Canada. We said the same of Australia last week with Wake and Fright. But then I'm even thinking back to our discussions about Alexander Aja. And, you know, there's a reason why he had to come to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure part of it is that he gets better budgets and that kind of stuff. But it's also probably because the films he wants to make are better received here. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So before we get to the release and reception of this film, I do think we have to address the uh, elephant in the room, which is this injury that happened to one Taylor Hickson on the set. So... Mm -hmm. And, and Zero, did you know about this before you walked into this movie? No, I absolutely didn't. But it definitely solidified my thoughts on the film after I had seen it. Interesting. Yeah. Well, okay, listeners, so let's let's go through this. Um, I actually even did some homework uh, uh, reaching out to former guest on Batman Mask of the Phantasm episode, Lindsay Travis, to help me with some of the legal jargon. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Speaking of shooting in North America, <laughs> on December 15th, 2016, actress Taylor Hickson, again, young Vera, was facially disfigured while shooting an emotionally charged scene in which her character approaches a glass door panel and falls to both knees while pounding on the glass with both hands. And I'm pretty sure this is the uh, doll cuckoo mirror that we are referring to here. Oh, interesting. I've seen other people speculate that it's the scene when older Beth is at her party after she talks to Lovecraft and she mm -hmm. sees young Vera pounding on the door. Interesting. So that may be it. The only reason I thought that is because there was a scene, a moment, a shot in the third act when Beth breaks through that, that cuckoo mirror door. Right. Yes. And I, I was like, well, I wonder if it was originally supposed to be Vera. And when they couldn't clearly use that footage, <laughs> they, mm. they made Beth do it instead, but you may be right. right. So, Generally, productions use safety glass for such scenes, which are designed not to splinter into dangerous shards if it breaks, but the Ghostland production used regular glass. So Ooh. Pascal Logier asked Hickson to, quote-unquote, pound harder on the glass with her fists with each take. He assured the young actress that it was safe to do so, and Hickson did as she was directed. Eventually, her fist shattered the glass, and she fell. Shards of glass dug deeply into her face, slicing open her left cheek, the crew rushed to her aid, and the craft services woman, and I quote, held her face together with napkins, going through one after another because there was so much blood. Yeah, you can actually see photos of this, as well as her undergoing surgery to repair the injury, mm -hmm. and it is really fucking bad. I did read that there was like a 40k settlement after that, and I, yep. I don't think that's enough. He is so wrong for that. I, I mean, I, I like to watch those videos on YouTube that, like, break down film productions. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically the ones and how they make props and stuff. Why were they using real glass in the first place? Mm -hmm. Everyone on that set is so wrong for that. Yes. And so, so the thing you're referring to, Zero, by the way, so so Hickson does file a lawsuit, which I'll get to in a minute. But independent of Hickson's lawsuit, um, the production company, Incident Productions, did plead guilty for failing to ensure the safety and welfare of a worker under the Workplace Safety and Health Act. So they were actually fined $40,000 by the province of Manitoba. That is not related to Hickson's lawsuit at all. So right. that's just like the, the, the government saying, um, dude, like, no. <laughs> yeah, like you had an unsafe okay. workplace, but it doesn't mean that the girl is going to get paid. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. 
Hickson was rushed to a nearby hospital where she received 70 stitches to the gash that stretched from her chin to almost her left ear. She has since undergone treatment, including laser treatment and silicone treatment, but over one year post-incident, so we're like at the end of 2017 here, she had been left with permanent scarring on the left side of her face. Uh, it was unknown at the time if any further treatment, including plastic surgery, would reduce the visual appearance of the injury, but she said that she had lost income as she recovered from the injury. Worse yet, she said that she had had trouble finding work because of her facial scarring. So, okay. On March 1st, 2018, this is two weeks before Ghostland's Paris premiere, Hickson sued the film's production company, Incident Productions, over lost work as a result of the incident. So, in the lawsuit, Hickson claimed that the production company either knew or should have known of the dangerous situation it had placed her in. Incident Productions fell below the legal standard of care that is expected of a production company. It was believed that the incident was easily preventable and, unfortunately, resulted in significant injuries to Hickson. So, yes. All of this being said, um, important to note also, Pascal Logier is not named in this lawsuit. He is not part of the plaintiff. Huh. That's right. That's unusual. So she's just suing the production. She's not blaming him, per se. Well, not legally speaking. And I'm sorry, I think right. it was defendant. I'm, I always get my legal stuff confused. But yes. Uh, and maybe that's because it would be easier to get money from a production company instead of a, of a lowly film director, you know? Right. Yeah. So... Part of this claim was we have general damages, which is basically money paying for the injury itself. So like medical bills and stuff, which luckily you Canadians have some good uh, medical stuff going on up there. This is true. Yeah. Damages for lost income, a.k.a. money she lost immediately because of the injury. Damages for future loss of income, a.k.a. her ongoing ability to be gainfully employed because of the injury. And special damages, a.k.a. Uh, for things like future employment if her injury made it uh, like physically impossible for her to do her job so i think like an exotic dancer losing a leg like they physically can't or aren't going to be able to dance in the same way that they were before right right that one's kind of harder to prove because you can't say that a facial scar is gonna like prevent you from acting like actually doing your job but yeah i guess unless it challenges your ability to emote but as someone who has watched her on motherland fort salem i can say that she does just fine like, she's, she's still a really amazing actress. Well, so here's the wrap-up of this. So the thing is this. So, yeah, needless to say, Hickson did not attend that Paris premiere. And over two years later, so we're actually in the pandemic now, Hickson discontinued. She filed a discontinuance on the lawsuit on May 22nd, 2020, which, coincidentally, is two months after Motherland Fort Salem premiered on Freeform and three days after it got a second season renewal. Now, hmm. Unfortunately, we will never know why she filed this discontinuance. And of course, like my speculation, and this is all it is, is that if part of her claim was like, it's, imp it's harder for me to get work or it's making it impossible for me to get work. But then she just got a second season renewal on a show that she's the star of. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that would have weakened her suit. However, that doesn't mean she didn't get paid. It's also possible, especially in Canadian law, that um, if someone files a discontinuance, it's because they're leading to a settlement out of court. Now, because a settlement would not be part of legal records, we have no idea if that happened, and if it did, how much money she was paid. Right. And if it did happen, it may have also included an NDA that said, you don't get to talk about this anymore. Yep. Exactly that. There we go. So yeah, um, that is all I have to say about that. But again, that is the dark cloud that was looming over this movie for a very, very, well, still is looming over this movie, for lack of a better term. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the two controversies. One of the two. So, okay. Ghost Slam was first shown in competition on February 3rd, 2018 at the Festival International du Film Fantastique de Guerre <laughs> I'm sorry. Yo, you were so close. <laughs> it's almost there. I, I'm sorry. De Gerardmer. I think that I'm, that's that's how I'm going to say it. But <laughs> this is an international festival of horror and science fiction films held every January in Vosges, France. So the film won three awards. Uh, it got the Grand Prize. It got the mm-hmm. Audience Award. And it got the Sci-Fi Award. This was the second French co-production in a row that dominated the awards at the festival. Can you guess what the previous year's winner was? Hmm. French film. This would have been in 2018? 2017 for the previous year. Uh, I have no idea. Tell me. Julia de Cornell's Raw. Oh, okay. yes. Yes, we love two sisters dominating. Okay. Yes, we do. <laughs> so the film gets a theatrical release in France on March 14th, 2018. Um, in some territories, the film was released as Ghostland and in others as Incident in a Ghostland. Now, the American release was much smaller. It got a streaming release in June of 2018. And Logier, this is kind of a long quote, but I feel like it's pertinent. So I'm going to go ahead and read this since we're talking about misogyny. Mm-hmm. He says, I would have loved to see an American studio give my film a wider release, though. I was convinced that one particular studio was going to give it a wide distribution, but our timing was unfortunate. Now, okay, sorry, hmm. this is me. He says one particular studio. Like, seeming like did not want to name the studio. But then... Right. But then he goes, our timing was unfortunate. What with the Weinstein scandal having just broken out. (laughs) The American studios thought the film was very effective, but it was too transgressive for the country's current state of affairs, meaning the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. They were very bothered by the fat ogre playing around with a little girl. In a way, this was both the worst and most fitting time as the current context reinforces the film's subtext. I've obviously always been on my main character's side. Always, a small part of the press has, since Martyrs, accused me of making misogynistic films, which is a dreadful misunderstanding. When the Weinstein scandal came out, I knew what it was about. I knew what it came out of because I've been talking about it since my first film. These female characters, these women, who are victims of power abuse, who are trying to push through and survive. That's all I've been talking about since the very start. So when the Weinstein affair broke out, it seemed to me like I understood the underlying premise of it all. There were a lot of commonalities with what I was trying to convey. What are y'all's thoughts on that statement? Yeah. Zero, why don't you take a first crack at that? Well, all right, this is what I'm going to say. Intentions probably don't... It's not like a, a streamlined straight shot to actuality, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I would have loved to have read this quote before I watched the film. <laughs> uh, I got something completely different. I guess I can digest that a little bit for if I ever decide to watch this movie again. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not the cup of tea that I was sipping last night when I was watching this movie, like, at all. But I think that's something to say, though, right? Like, yeah, you can say that's his intent all along, but if you're not picking that up from your viewing of the film, then that also is a failing of the filmmaker. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the issue. When I was reading some of his quotes, I could see what he was trying to say, and I could see it in the film. Mm -hmm. But it was like, if I squinted with one eye closed and reading some of the criticisms, many of which are written from women themselves talking about how they view this film as misogyny and how, yes, it's an endurance test. It's a barrage of violence against women. That doesn't make it 
better just because you say, no, that's the point, because people still have to endure it. And I I think as we get into the film, we can draw comparisons to martyrs because a lot of people do say, well, one of these is more effective than the other. And I think it's important to acknowledge why. Yes, which um, I might make a brief answer for that question right now. But I think because the suffering in martyrs is incremental to the plot like and the central philosophy of that film that is Mm -hmm. spoken aloud whereas you don't really have that here yeah it's interesting because i definitely saw him use the word transcendence in Mm -hmm. interviews about both of these films and yet i feel like it is part of martyrs like it's baked into the dna and the narrative and like the whole arc of that movie and I can see it here again when I read it in his interviews, but when I'm watching the film, I don't see a ton of transcendence. Yeah, no, I'm inclined to agree. That being said, I should come out with this. I do really like this movie. Flaws and all. So (laughs) I'm just going to say that. I definitely, I don't regret watching it at all. I mean, I I was sitting up in bed watching it, which definitely says something. But Mm -hmm. I mean, after hearing this quote, I'm wondering if like, I don't know really how movie sets work i'm just some chick on the internet who likes to ingest them but i'm like you know i i hear this quote now and i'm kind of like did you run this by anyone and this this film is not old it's like you know it's it's only a couple years old now Mm -hmm. and i think that we're kind of at the point where like somebody should be reviewing things i guess before (laughs) and like i don't know did did this guy actually say here i have this this idea this is what i want to translate in my film and and maybe have people of that actual demographic look over and say hey this doesn't or does does not translate what you're trying to say or is it just like a steamroll oh well this is what i felt this is what i wanted to portray and if you know if it didn't translate that way then oh well this is what i wanted to portray you know what i mean yeah and that that's because that's because joe and i were having a brief conversation about this at some point today about if this movie were released 10 years ago we don't think it might have gotten the same amount of flack because we're looking at something like insidious chapter two which does deal with um uh and let, sorry we're, we're, i'm removing misogyny from this and we're talking about transphobia now but like that does incorporate a, a, a cross-dressing possibly trans killer mm-hmm. and now people watch it, they'll talk about it. But like in 2013, that wasn't really a sticking point in reviews. But then when you look at reviews for this movie, that aspect of the candy truck woman is pointed out as a negative in almost every single one. Yep. So it's interesting how, like what, five years difference? People mm-hmm. are all of a sudden caring about it. Yeah, I think in some ways, this is actually a really positive sign where people have become less afraid to call a filmmaker or more specifically a film. Mm-hmm out for some of its failings i think this probably gives credit to the rise that we've just got greater accessibility to different kinds of films also that we are all now more online people can actually share their thoughts more easily via blogs and social media but also i think the world has shifted and people aren't just going to sit back and be like oh good another trans killer (laughs) totally cool with that people are gonna say no i've seen this shit a million times and also i now have an outlet to say i'm sick and fucking tired of this yeah fuck yeah Yeah. this is the world that i want to live in personally there you go (laughs) we're making progress slightly (laughs) well uh on so 
Reception actually wasn't as negative as I thought. Um, so on Rotten Tomatoes, we're looking at a 55% with an average score of 6 out of 10. Uh, over on Letterboxd, we're looking at a score of 6.4 out of 10, which again is higher than I expected. Some uh, Just some kind of like blurbs. Uh, some critics thought it was a taut but corny slasher flick. Others thought it was unpleasant and not in a good way because they found all the cruelty to be so meaningless. Mm-hmm. Others took issue with the lack of motivation or backstory for the villain, something we'll probably talk about quite a bit. Yep. But then you also had some critics who thought that this film served as an effective critique of misogynistic torture porn. So, hmm. again, I'm not really sure how we get there, but I'd love we'll, we'll parse through this. So, <laughs> my final thing, though, um, some reviews were were coming down on the script for being um, uh, like stilted dialogue or just flat dialogue, which I think is a valid critique. The problem is some of these reviews were blaming it on his inability to speak English properly. Oh, dear. Hmm. Because The Tall Man was his first uh, English language film, and this is his second one. Some of them were like, he should have really learned more, like gotten better at English because he doesn't write English particularly well. Which, again, may be true, but it just seems kind of, I don't know, that seems like a weird personal, like, tacky attack. Yeah, that's a bit of a below-the-belt dig, isn't it? It starts to smack a little bit of, like, xenophobia or whatever the language equivalent to that. Very, uh, this is my favorite word, anthropocentric of you. Ooh. Ooh. I love that one. I love when I get to whip that one out. Wait, what does that mean? (laughs) It's... Exactly! Um, It's like, you know, the whole world revolves around you. So if, if you're not doing it well in English, you need to learn how to be doing it better in English and not just, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The world revolves around me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of the world revolving around me, I'm done with my portion of this episode. So bye, y'all. Um, Joe, <laughs> take over. <laughs> Very nice. So the film opens with a bit of a, I don't even know how to frame this, like, we start with a quote. It's a tribute to H.P. Lovecraft, and it's attributed to somebody where I said, wait, who the fuck is that? Am I supposed to know who Elizabeth Keller is? And then you later find out that this is the main character, Beth. So it's already kind of doing something that's a little bit almost metatextual. Mm-hmm. Now, do y'all have thoughts on choosing H.P. Lovecraft to be the framing device and um, weird celebrity cameo in this film? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this was my first, the first thing that I had an issue with. Right. With this was obviously the Lovecraft quote. Mm-hmm. I, I first thought it was just going to be the quote and then we were going to be done. Mm-hmm. Whatever. No. Um, I had no idea that Lovecraft was going to play this like, you know, standard The standard, I guess, Mm -hmm. for one of our characters and like her whole driving point is her writing career and the fact that she can create realities and, and, you know, something that Lovecraft does, create realities. And um, yeah, ew, just, you know, (laughs) obviously as a person of color, I see this and I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe. And again, like timing is everything. If, If this movie came out, let's say like. 30, 25, 30 years ago, whatever, I, I could let it go. But mm-hmm. this movie came out in 2018. I know we mm-hmm. said it like seven times already, but just to reiterate, and I think that like, <laughs> it's still a relevant point, point. <laughs> we should be better than this, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's just like huge eye roll. And especially because this character, Beth, like holds Lovecraft to the standard and he's in her fantasy and you know mm-hmm. he is the number one icon that she looks up to and bases uh 
her writings off of, I'm just like, not really? Like, Octavia Butler is rolling in her grave? Let's, come on. <laughs> and it's interesting because no one asked him about that when this film came out. So, like, he gives a general explanation as to why he included, like, a figure like Lovecraft, but not Lovecraft specifically, because, you know, he, he talks about how, like, his Lovecraft was Toby Hooper. Like, that was mm-hmm. who he was trying to emulate in his filmmaking career. Like, that's what made, made a lot to him. So, which, oh, like, okay, so use fucking Toby Hooper, because that's also a better example for that's this film. That's what I'm saying. Just replace them. I, I think that would have been a better option anyway. So, I, mm. I'm not defending this at all because there there was plenty of other people you could use. Mm-hmm. So I think the benefit was that Lovecraft was dead. So there was no issue with using his visage in a scene, uh, like play, having a character play him. Okay. Toby Hooper died after the film was produced, but before the film was released. Like, because I'm like, well, why don't you just use Stephen King? Because we're not using Toby yeah, Hooper here because one. she's not a filmmaker. She's a writer. She's a storyteller. So we're looking for horror storytellers. Again, the only reason I can think, well, we're not using Stephen King is because he's alive. And who's a famous dead story? Why, why not use Edgar Allan Poe, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it's bizarre. Or even just like, do you need to ground this in the real world? Like, why not just say, I'm a huge fan of this famous horror writer? And it's like, right. I don't know. It It's a very unusual choice. And I've seen Loger online defending it and saying like he hates it when people criticize this film for not being lovecraftian because obviously we don't get a cthulhu in here like (laughs) it it doesn't really adhere to what you would expect from lovecraft and he he gets really defensive about it and part of me is like well it's because you're using a character that doesn't match the kind of story that you're telling like it's a bad fit well but i also wouldn't walk into this movie expecting a lovecraftian film that implies cosmic horror exactly which this movie is not (laughs) no so so that's why people have taken issue with it but then he gets defensive where he's like well why would you think that that's stupid and you're like dude yeah read the room you're the one who picked it when you say lovecraft people are going to think that you're anticipating something especially in this movie where there's a lot of groundwork that anticipates things to come so question for both of you then do y'all think that logier is aware of lovecraft's racist tendencies i mean that is maybe a valid question i i don't know i mean he's definitely a, a creator in in the genre so i feel like everyone in the genre is kind of aware of this uh, unspoken, actually no, fuck that, not unspoken. It's very spoken, <laughs> yeah, very spoken of. So I, I don't want to believe that he didn't know. I just, it's, it's like a fun fact that you get on like trivia night. Like it's <laughs> to that degree. So I, I don't want to believe that he just didn't know. I think he did know. Maybe this is just me being bitter, but hey, I'm a big yeah. gal sometimes. Well, th- th- there's no right or wrong because we don't know the answer to this question. I do think, though, like, okay, you know, we, we're always trying to tell a story about, you know, okay, like, what happens to your brain when, when trauma is inflicted upon it, how, how strong the human body can be, and, like, how mm-hmm. a creator can, like, you know, create this world for themselves when they right. are blah, blah, blah. If we were telling a story about separating the art from the artist, this inclusion would make sense. But that is not the story we are telling. Ooh, that's yeah. a good point, though. That I mean, I like that. But if they were to go in that direction, I would really enjoy it. But they definitely did it. And no. was, like, not necessary. Yeah, it, it's, it's just brand name recognition. That's why it's here. Right. Yeah. 
So, but I agree. It, it would make more sense to see use like Stephen King or you know some someone who actually writes dark horror instead of cosmic horror because then you're expecting something that we're clearly not getting besides the just I guess otherworldly. But that's like pretty figurative and selective to the story, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. Back to my my the first question. I believe that this dude kn- knew, but I I don't think it was necessarily a deal breaker for him, especially right. since given the uh, portrayal of the the second villain, one of the you know, one of the two villains, the yeah. trans slash cross-dressing, not actually yep. trans, I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so if he was capable of, of putting something like that into his film and being like, yeah, this is fine, like, I, it has no, no doubt in my mind that, you know, he probably knew about Lovecraft's problematic, extremely problematic behavior and was like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, and let's also acknowledge the fact that uh, what is controversial in North America may not be considered as much of a button pusher in France, right? Like, we're talking about the place where Gaspar Noé comes from, right? And part of his entire oeuvre is to offend people and get them upset. So it is entirely possible that Loger knows what he's doing and maybe deliberately did so, like this is going to serve my purpose. And if it offends people, then maybe controversy will make my films more notorious and make me more money or so on. We don't know. That's the problem. We just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a good kind of ambiguity where you're like, Ooh, like, but there's so many possibilities. I like all of them. No, 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 no. (laughs) There's a good one. There's a bad one. (laughs) It's like, this decreases my enjoyment of this film in another increment. Damn. Yes. Yo, (laughs) I'm saying, I just like how, how are you? How, uh, I'm getting angry now. <laughs> how how do you decide to create a movie based on an ism? Right, this is misogyny, mm-hmm. and then just like add several other isms into the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe stick to one ism. Yeah, just one. Yeah, just I one. think it's his self-serious attitude about the film because, again, I said earlier, I view this film as kind of like schlocky sh- shock value. I don't think there's a lot of nuance or depth to this film, but taken as kind of a fun, quote unquote, right. <laughs> ninety-minute slash like home invasion slasher movie, I do find it very effective. I think it's very well directed. I think it's very well shot. Yeah. I, I acknowledge and agree with a lot of the complaints we're going to have about the content of this film separating myself from that i still think this is a very effective film it's just uh it is very um one note's not the right word but it's just uh the film isn't taking the eff- the time or effort to have conversations about these things it's just putting them in here yes. like Bloop, here you go yeah and then getting frustrated when people get annoyed or call it out on it. Yeah, like honestly, if he came out and was like, "Oh yeah, I just wanted to make a really like like uh, upsetting like home invasion slasher movie." Cool, B- right. bam, there okay. you go. I'm more inclined <laughs> to be into your movie. Yeah, there is that. Um, okay, so we've got this quote that opens the film, and then our first images are of a young boy stumbling across a field and onto the highway as a car passes by, and. I thought it was interesting that this doesn't end up getting remarked upon, but yeah. I did wonder, like, is this meant to be an earlier victim of this candy truck duo? Because it, it seemed ironic to me that we end up getting this replication later on when the girls escape. I think so, but also because is Clarice's, Aunt Clarice's house, is that where these these killers have been holed up? Or did they just, like, did they just go from house to house it's killing unclear. parents? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's unclear. (laughs) 
We just know that there's an active serial killer targeting families in this area, but we don't know if they're held up in Aunt Clarice's house. It would make sense, though, because we know that it's been vacant for some time. Well, because all the dolls are in there, and we know that one of these killers is a real boner, literally, for dolls. So mm-hmm. I guess what I thought was the dolls didn't belong to Clarice, but because the house had been abandoned for so long, like that's where like, they brought the dolls and made it their own. Yeah, that's an interesting know. thing. That's just like a lot of dolls. There's <laughs> so many dolls. I mean, they do have like a whole ice cream truck though. So mm-hmm. I definitely don't want to rule that out. But I, I totally forgot about the opening scene with the boy coming across yeah. the, the street. Like, yeah. I mean, I was just so focused on A, the twist. B, that weird Lovecraftian shit. <laughs> C, the problematic trans slash not trans question mark character. I just totally forgot to put that in my... There was no closure there. I just Mm-mm. completely forgot about it. Um, it's when you yeah. guys just mentioned it just now. Yeah, no, I think that is what it is. Also, there were much fewer dolls in the film originally. It wasn't until, like, Glogier came in contact with production designer Gordon Wildling, and they just, like, kind of talked about it because he had a really Baroque style, like, old classic European. And the dolls kind of came from that, which I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, set-wise, that makes sense, but you also have a character where the dolls play a very important part in their characterization. It's the only part that plays in the characterization. So, yeah, I find it interesting that the dolls came later, um, after, or maybe, maybe, I don't know, after the script was written. Well, especially since the original plans for the production was that it was going to look more like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. And then mm-hmm. it was like, oh, Baroque, oh, dolls, oh, European Giallo-esque. It's yeah. Like, Okay, that is a significant move. Like, we are really shifting the vibe of this movie. Very much so. Okay, so we get the car passing by, and this contains our three family members. So we have Pauline, who is played by French uh, singer Mylene Farmer. Um, Wait, I'm sorry. By the way, though... French singer doesn't do her justice. She, okay. she she has sold more than 30 million records in France. Mm-hmm. She is among the most successful recording artists of all time in France, uh, holding the record for most number one hit singles on the French charts with 21 to date, eight of nice. which were consecutive. Damn, lady. Yeah. Uh, she agreed to do this movie because she did a video, a music video that was directed by Pascal Logier, and he asked her to come do it, and she said yes. <laughs> Yo, we got to watch that music video. Cool. <laughs> Love that. More problematic content in the music no, video. No, no, please, no. She's like getting beat in it. No, <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah, um, I definitely saw one review that was like, oh, the fact that she's not trying to hide her accent and it's just a French woman in the US with non-French speaking daughters is super distracting. And I was like, again, what are we doing? Like, as though people don't emigrate from other countries and yes. then... <laughs> And, and he addresses that in that Rue Morgan interview. He says, like, I changed the character who was not originally going to be from France or speaking with a French accent for her because I didn't want to ask her to use an American accent. But also, like, yeah, you can clearly have a woman from France with a French accent who comes across to the North America to North America mm-hmm. and raises daughters that speak English with English accents. <laughs> yeah, like th- this should not be a deal breaker for somebody for someone to literally include that in a review. I yeah. was flabbergasted. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, that, that is petty and splitting hairs. Yeah. And also, it's not at all distracting. Like, it's a no. French woman. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> when you know the director's French, too, you're just like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Got it. <laughs> Moving on. Okay, so we've got Pauline, and then she has an aspiring author and youngest daughter, Beth, 
who's played in the younger scenes by Amelia Jones. And then she also has a slightly more contemptuous, bitter older daughter, who is Vera, played by Taylor Hickson. And I saw a lot of people say that Vera is unlikable until she's not. And I was like, no, Vera just strikes me as a teenager who's been uprooted and is kind of pissed off at her parents. Like, I'm sorry, that's every teenager I've ever known. We also get the line later where she's like, I know you've always loved Beth more than me. So like, Uh we already, like, again, it's a kind of a one note character detail, but it's like, hey, that tells me honestly all I need to know about you and your relationship with your mom and your sister. Yeah. That part. Also, I don't know, I, mean, I know you've seen Coda, Joe, but uh, Zero, if you, have, if you saw Coda, aka this year's Best Picture Oscar winner, um, Young Beth is the lead actress in Coda. <laughs> oh. Yeah, she's also the sister in Lock and Key, if folks watch that on Netflix. There you I go. Did, oh! Oh my god, I didn't even notice. I didn't watch that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the other funny thing is that she's British, and I've literally never seen her act with her own accent, so she's yeah. pretty darn good. God. Mm. Uh, okay, so they are passed on the road by this honking candy truck, and Vera gives the finger to the truck as it drives by, and this is when we get the title card show up. This reminded me, I actually thought we were going to get some highway horror here. I thought mm-hmm. that this was going to turn into, like, Duel or... Oh, see, I, Jeepers I, I know, I was, like, I was immediately going to Jeepers Creepers when we use... Because we have, like, three instances of headlights, like, go, mm-hmm. in the background. And again, yeah, unfortunately, um, anytime you have a car, a big van or truck that is just ramming and speeding into the back of another one, I'm thinking Jeepers Creepers, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the other one is uh, our Paul Walker... Joyride? Joyride, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so the family stops at a rest stop, and this is where we get a little bit of exposition about where they're headed to, so... Beth fills in attendant Janet, who is played by Miriam Bernstein. And she basically says, yeah, we're moving into my dead aunt's house, which is around here somewhere. <laughs> and Janet's like, cool, that place has been abandoned for a long time, yada, yada, yada. And we also get a newspaper that confirms that there have been five families who have been killed. And often it's the oldest daughter who is kept alive or, or a daughter of a certain age. And Beth uses this opportunity to say, oh, Vera, if she's often your age. Now, let me tell y'all, how big does this town look to y'all? Oh, not nearly not, big enough. No. <laughs> like not even close. Is this a town? I thought that this was like a literal rest stop on the way to Aunt Clarice's. I mean, okay, nevertheless, it's like there have been five like brutal murders in this town, quote unquote. So in this general vicinity, which looks to be populated by farmhouses mm-hmm. and cottages. So <laughs> I I just find it interesting that it's like that no one's more concerned with that, although maybe that's the commentary. And didn't like the gas station, the gas station attendant like actually knew of... Right, the, the aunts, the aunt, I guess, the, or the house that they were talking about. So it couldn't have been that big. I mean, that's why I kind of wondered if maybe Aunt Clarice was a bit of a doll fanatic, because if she had that reputation, that might be why Janet is like, oh, yes, the kooky old lady who lives in the dilapidated house with all the dolls. Yeah. <laughs> right. But maybe it's just a small town and Janet knows everybody. We know. Yeah. Honestly, drinking game for this episode. We don't know. (laughs) This movie just doesn't give us quite enough information to make opinions. But also, like, if the dolls belong to the killers, 
wouldn't you think that like the family would come into the house and be like, "Who the fuck's dolls in this?" Or I, I, maybe the aunt was strange, so maybe that mm-hmm. is. Maybe I don't. Yeah, I definitely got the impression that they hadn't seen Aunt Clarice in quite some time, but we don't know. Hmm. Okay, so they arrive at what Vera calls Rob Zombie's house, and yes, lots of dolls. Not in great condition. Vera is not very impressed with this house. This is when we get the introduction of this mirror secret passage with the doll that jumps out and laughs and scares everybody. And it, I guess, comes to great effect over the course of the film. But I was also like, what is the function of this? Yo, I had the exact same thought. I understand, like, sure, cheap jump scare, got it. Like, 90% of horror movies have at least one cheap one, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it became this this recurring thing, this, like, cuckoo mirror. And yeah. I, I didn't really understand, like, why. Okay, I, I figured it out. Here's, <laughs> here's what is going on. Aunt Clarice was running a Halloween haunt. And she was using this and all of the oh dolls God. to scare local kids. <laughs> I mean, because well, the mirror is supposed to act as it's not a secret passage, is it? It's more just which like is a what hu- I thought it was. But it looks yeah. like there's only enough space to maybe fit one to two people in there next to this fucking doll. Right. There's there's one way in and one way out unless mm-hmm. you break through the wall behind you. And right. so. But but she makes it more. She's like, yeah, this is like a secret mirror. There's going to be a switch, open a door. It's like, so I would assume it's like a secret storage unit. Like if you're going to hide, it's like a safe almost. But right. why we have this pop-out doll here, I could not tell you. Right. Yeah. It, it doesn't make a ton of sense, as Zero suggested. Yeah, it feels like it's there so that we can use it a couple of times and get a cheap jump scare out of it. Yeah. I do think it works. Like I think every time it pops back up, literally, I think it's effective. It, it's just one of those things where it, you can't think about it too much because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just like either A, Clarice really, really liked dolls and therefore that's why this is here. Just her kooky Aunt Clarice, like we, mm-hmm. said, like we said. Or, yes, the killers have moved in here and they have like started putting dolls everywhere. Right. Yeah. So one of those. Sidebar. I also thought we were going to get secret passages and or people living in the walls. Disappointed that it's neither. Yeah. People under the stairs action, right? Yeah, or, you know, Black Xmas, or... (laughs) Yeah, all those those people in the walls movies. (laughs) Yeah. Boy. (laughs) So, yeah, this is also when Vera makes it very well known that she doesn't approve of the way that Pauline handles Beth. She feels like she coddles and protects her too much. So they're sitting outside, and Pauline's like, why can't you just be nicer to your sister? And Vera's like, because she needs a fucking reality check. Yeah. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> yes, no. So she tells her mom, she's like, you know what I found in her room? I found an interview that she wrote herself, but it's an interview with herself as if she was a famous writer or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bing, 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 bing. <laughs> but also, are we not supposed to do that? Because no one else has ever done that as a child and pretended <laughs> no, that they were famous and giving interviews. But the second you watch this a second time, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is really the movie spelling it out for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hell Here's yeah. The you know, it, it was actually kind of fun. <laughs> like, I, after the twist makes itself known, 
I kind of like, you know, I was laying in bed just like thinking about what I just digested. Mm-hmm. And it was actually kind of fun to like put the pieces together, like right? how obvious it was. And I, I usually I, I think I have a pretty good inkling for foreshadowing and stuff like that. But okay. I, I did not get it at all my, my mm. first watch. So I spent a lot of time just thinking about after I finished the movie, you know, the hints that were given to us, mm-hmm. specifically through the dialogue, which I yeah. really liked um, when we are as like older, Bon, older Beth, I'm sorry, yeah, talking to the mother and realizing that, you know, she wasn't actually talking to the mother. And this is, you know, there's certain, certain dialogue that kind of peeked through the facade, I guess. Right. And realizing that after my screening was kind of fun, I will, I will admit, even though like now I'm like, damn, this shit was like really in my face and I was just like did not notice at all I like that though because I mean I'm not one of those people who's great at guessing twists but I can usually sense that something isn't quite on the up and up and I definitely had the spider sense tingling but I couldn't quite figure out what it was and then as soon as she comes back and older Vera's like you gotta wake up I was like I get it I get it but I like that the movie plays it mostly fair like if you're paying attention you can figure this out it's not like we're really duping you yeah and uh, also because you enter the second act kind of like or i guess well it's weird because like the the flash forward happens 20 minutes into the movie Mm -hmm. and then it's minute 50 when we cut back to reality so we have 30 minutes but it's not really act two it's like Mm -hmm. the end of act one with the first half of act two but um there's a lot of things where it's like there's any complaints you have, like Joe, you said, like, uh, why didn't uh, the mom send Vera to therapy? Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a reason for there that. There we go. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's been locked in a fucking basement the whole time. <laughs> Inside Beth's head. There we go. So as the women settle in, Pauline takes a phone call from some woman named Jane that we will never meet. And she is attacked just out of nowhere. Like we have seen the truck lights when Vera and Pauline are outside. Like we know that they're close, but this attack is so sudden and so brutal. It's really fucking effective. And uh, she is attacked by Fat Man, who is played by Rob Archer. And he basically knocks Pauline unconscious with the doll that he is holding. And then Mm -hmm. he sniffs its crotch. And then we see him dragging the screaming girls downstairs to the basement where he then sniffs their crotches and eventually settles on Vera because she is not the one who is currently menstruating. That was gross, by the way. Um... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, did y'all, um, did y'all get sexual assault from this? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it definitely started with the sniffing. (laughs) <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. So I mean, again, like I, I, I just didn't know. You if this mean full like... on rape, right? Like yeah. he's dragging Vera away so he can rape her. Sorry, oh yeah. yeah, that that's definitely what I was thinking. My my brain went actually directly to don't breathe. Oh um, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's where my brain. And we'll get into it later. We'll go with the because when he fing- starts fingering the dolls. But I will say, and not not to like. <laughs> be like well look look what it didn't do i do appreciate that despite the fact that we do have several moments of brutality in this film we don't have any on-screen like sexual like actual rape outside of yes the uh the sniffing and the almost fingering yeah i mean low bar but... <laughs> how, how weird is it that we get to say well at least we didn't get worse than this but you are right we have seen far worse and as a result 
this i'm not gonna say it's tasteful but it feels like it's more heavily implied as opposed to needing to show us yes which maybe the fact that these are meant to be like 13 to 15 year old girls that probably played a part in that decision right yeah so we see that beth tries to escape here because she sees that she's got an opening as uh, the fat man drags her sister away so she runs up the stairs but she can't unlock the door, and that's when she sees that the second assailant candy truck woman, who is played by, yes, Kevin Power. And yes, candy truck woman is played by a man, so for the purposes of not knowing how this character identifies, we're going to go with they, them for the rest of the recording. So for both of y'all, had, had Vera or Beth, whichever one it is, not told the police at the end of the film... It's two men coming after us. Mm-hmm. And, and if you didn't see the credit saying that that, that that candy truck woman is played by a man, would you have known that this was a man and a woman, like playing a woman? Yes. Interesting. I, I was trying to look and I was like, honestly, I feel like they covered it really well to the point where when we get the few brief glimpses of their face, it almost looks like there's like facial prosthetics on it to make their face look more feminine. That's interesting, because I I definitely was getting weird Gabriel vibes for the opening. They were doing, like, Love hair it. in front of the face and <laughs> dark it. trench coat. But as the film progresses, it became increasingly clear that it was, yeah, it, it was a man wearing feminine styling. Yeah, honestly, for me, it was the wig for me. Mm. Oh, <laughs> of course, Blurdy Massacre, clocking yeah. those wigs. Oh, yeah, we wig watching 24-7. <laughs> no woman, trans woman, would would do that to themselves. No trans woman I know would walk out the house with a wig like that. Sorry. So this tells me that this is a man, I guess, in women's clothing? Yes. Well, so so this yeah. is the other sort of elephant of the room we don't know i did see that most reviewers identified this character as trans the reality is is that we know so little about either one of these assailants the only reason i would default to this being a trans character is simply because they are listed as woman yeah but played by a man so we we would then say, okay, so this is maybe a trans woman who has transitioned or is beginning to work on passing or dr- dressing in female clothes. And and that's the thing, right? Like, it's clear the film doesn't want to do any work to address this. And when no. we're talking about queer or cross-dressing or trans killer territory, our big point of contention is always like this, you know, like, is the reason they are a killer because it is stem from the, their queerness, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have that answer here. We don't yeah. know why this person is crazy and, and psychotic and serial killery. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I don't I don't ever think that the movie is saying, oh, this person is scary because it's a man dressed as a woman. Like, I never get that vibe from this. But I mean, I don't know. Your mileage may vary. I don't know. I was kind of feeling that, honestly. Like, okay, maybe this is just me having to put my pride first. But... I didn't want to believe that this character was, in fact, a trans woman because it just makes me more upset about how they were portrayed. And don't get me wrong, like, if we were to do it correctly, I would love to see, uh, you know, a new slasher uh, as a a trans woman. But, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone is capable of being on every side of the story. So, sure, we need 
sure, let's go with, with the trans woman that's a killer. But this kind of, it was just not... Well, it, it feels so lazy, right? Like, yeah. even if I could see that this was some kind of homage to famous trans women killers, I might say, okay, well, you're maybe acknowledging the fact that we have done this before, but instead this just feels like, okay, well, what are two, what are two things that would be scary? A large, maybe mentally ill, childlike, right. nonverbal person and... A man who dresses like a woman. And that to me is where it could be seen as very deeply disgusting and completely outdated and very ill-advised. Now, if this is just a trans woman who's a killer, then sure, let's do that. I just think the problem is, is we have had, you know, upwards of 40, 50 something years of that now. So I think people were right to be frustrated with this. The problem is, is that because we don't know, again, we don't know the intention. We we can't even unpack it in any interesting detail in this film because this character has one fucking line in the whole movie. And the rest of the time, we don't know why they're doing what they're doing. That's well, facts. I'm just, it's, it's giving me like, oh, they're scary because they're trans. And that's fucked up. Hmm. I, I want a trans killer that's scary because they're scary, not because they're trans, because that's not scary. And right. I, I have come to this conclusion really based on the, the last scene when um, Nora finally are killed and then like the wig like, <laughs> the wig falls off, slides off. And I'm like, okay, this is giving you're scary because you're trans, not because you're a fucking psychopath. That's kidnapping young girls and, you know, has something to, uh, to uh, I guess, fulfill this, like, sickness within you. But no, it's well, because you're trans. But and it, I don't begs like the, Going back to the Lovecraft of it all, it's like, why can't this just be a woman? Right? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, sorry, if it's a trans woman, obviously it is a woman. But, like, like why, why do we have to have a male identifying actor play this role when it yeah. could just be a woman or, or, or even a trans woman playing this role. It's same as with with, uh, with with Lovecraft. You know, it was like, why couldn't it just be Poe instead of like, why did you have to do this particular one? Yeah, I would be interested to know if people would. I think people would still take offense to it if it was a trans woman killer, because we are honestly, we've all just had enough to hear with that kind of narrative right now. And I think unless Azira was suggesting you really did the work to make it interesting and ideally remove it from like oh she's trans and therefore a killer the problem is here is like you've got a trans woman killer potentially most likely but also then you couldn't even cast a trans woman or a female actress it's also okay so i don't know uh like so you know how he wanted to he was going for more texas chainsaw massacre because i actually do get a lot of 70s like horror movie vibes from this like it looks pretty but like the feel of this movie is very like grimy gross like like right just 70s horror and i do wonder i don't know like if he loves toby hooper so much he loves leatherface so much if he was trying to like make this this candy truck woman a leatherface style killer Hmm. But that's not really a defense. I'm just explaining what might have been the reason. But at the same time, if I want to go really dark, I can say, well, he wants to put all this in the movie and he's making it so ambiguous so that he has a defense saying, well, it's not stated in the film. <laughs> right. I don't have to explain myself. <laughs> yeah. The film doesn't say it. it, it that's not the point of the film. It's, it's it's about art and the artist, you know? I mean, again, like oh insert God. jack off motion here. It's, it's both ways. It's both sidesing.
Yes, exactly. Did you say insert jack-off motion yes. here? Yes. <laughs> I'm an O-terror. Jack-off, jack-off, jack-off. Yes. You should not be able to use plot holes in your defense. That's like, that's just like ultra shortcut. I don't like that. No. But at the same time, like if this was a movie, and again, I, I know this movie it was made, made in 2016, released in 2018. But like, if you mm-hmm. told me, if you put a grainy filter on this movie and said that this came out in 1976... I'd be like, all right, yeah, I believe it. Oh, yeah, I would fall for that, too. Mm -hmm. Well, or if you slap dubbing on it and said that it was a German-French co-production from the same time period, we would all be like, ugh, okay. (laughs) We can see it because we've been there. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And that's the big thing, right? It's all of these unknowns, but then also, as Zero has repeatedly stated, like, the time period that this film was made in the excuse isn't there because this isn't new and you should have known better yeah yeah now maybe in 30 years no one's going to care because people are going to conflate 2013 and 2018 so it won't matter but (laughs) unfortunately right now at this particular moment in time it's Mm -hmm. very apparent yeah especially as we move through the middle section of the 2010s i feel like and I've said this numerous times on my YA podcast, we really start to see the kind of political correctness activism coming in where we don't say the R word, we don't say the F slur anymore. Like, it, it's just simply not done because we know better. And if this film had been on the other side of that divide, we might have been more forgiving because people were still doing it. But since it's not, we ain't forgiven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so back to this still strong opening. <laughs> um, just when Beth seems to think that she might get injured by the candy truck woman, this is when Pauline returns, and Pauline kind of goes into superhero action mode. She ends up beating the crap out of candy truck woman. She goes down into the basement. She stabs the shit out of Fat Man, and then she gets candy truck woman right in the neck. And I will say my first big oh, something isn't quite right here, is that mm-hmm. we see Pauline get stabbed so many times with this broken bottle by Oof, Candy yeah. Truck Woman. I was like, there ain't no way she's surviving this. And yeah. so when we see that, you know, the the kitchen door is closing and opening, I was like, there's something going on with the fact that Beth can't see everything right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also because like when we get the, fir- the the first body to fall, we assume it's going to be the mom, but it's mm-hmm. the candy truck woman. Yeah, right. I I mean I, I guess I was just being a little optimistic because I was really feeling that scene when the mother is just going ham on these intruders, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in my bed up at night, like fuck yeah, this is why you don't mess with the mother because <laughs> we've all seen those videos on national geographic when you mess with the mama chicken and she just goes absolutely ape shit and it's just hormones and this is why you don't fuck with them so i guess i was just kind of in the moment not really realizing that hey this chick just got stabbed in the stomach like seven times with yeah. a broken bottle and this is not realistic <laughs> there is some cgi blood in this movie that i don't think looks terrible it's not the worst cgi blood i've ever seen but a lot of these bottle stabs and later the uh, the throat slash mm. will all be cgi blood uh yeah i i don't think it's too bad i wasn't incredibly distracted by it personally Mm -mm. but um also we always have to talk about geography and like uh, horror films especially home invasion horror films but i do love how tight this house is Mm -hmm. 
whenever these girls are sneaking around the halls, it's just like I, I, I am on the edge of my seat because it's just like these killers can be around any corner Mm -hmm. and often seem to just be where they need to be. Right. Yeah. It's very, uh, uh, Jason Voorhees, uh, teleportation ability. (laughs) Yes, indeed. So this is basically the end of this opening. And, and if we cut the film here, I think it would make one hell of a short film. Just like here's a home invasion film where the women have to fight back. And then they just like take these two out yeah in and out good 20 minutes in and out good 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 um but that is not where the film ends we have to have a quote unquote time jump so we cut to older beth who is now played by crystal reed and she wakes up screaming in bed and good thing she's got a cute husband played by adam hertig there to comfort her sure (laughs) his three lines in this movie (laughs) he does not have a character name he is beth's husband he also seems to be her assistant uh i i said manager but yes okay there you go yeah (laughs) (laughs) so older beth is an incredibly successful author and i did absolutely write in my notes she writes pretentiously on a typewriter and has a child named harlequin Ugh. The typewriter, I lost. I lost it. I was like, "Girl, that is not productive at all." <laughs> Yo, I definitely said the same thing to myself. Get off the fucking high horse, girl. <laughs> it's twenty. It should be. It should be twenty eighteen right now. Yeah. But here's the thing, right? Like we all saw this and just went, "Ugh, I know that kind of person." Yeah. <laughs> it's not like oh that's unbelievable this is all in this child's head it's oh god she's become one of these people uh, she want to be lovecraft so bad she's a hipster <laughs> she really is yeah she's a hipster lovecraftian writer <laughs> i will also say so i'm i'm not a huge narcissist but i am sort of in love with myself at various times as you should be i don't know that i could work in a space that just has giant frame posters of all of my book covers and all these other things like is that weird is is that a thing that authors do i feel like we always see it depicted in media but that just seems so self-indulgent well if you think about beth being a stand-in for logier that may be how he views himself. Ooh, hard <laughs> pill to swallow. Hard pill to swallow right there. I mean, maybe we're adults and are not narcissists, but this could also be another kind of red flaggy red flag that this is all an illusion. Well, right. I guess. Or we're just yeah. normal people and this guy is fucking crazy, this director. I don't know. Well, it could be what a child thinks a successful author does, right? Right. Yeah. Well, but then we move into this talk show piece, which, by the way, this is the film that is the most exemplary of what Pascal Logier claims he is trying to do with this film, the conversations Mm -hmm. he's trying to have. You know, the woman's like, why write this book? Not only is it um, a horrible, like, violent, bloody story, it's also a true story about your life that you are putting on here, which I think there's something to say about true crime and stuff, but this movie doesn't seem interested in having that conversation. Yeah. Do we want to talk about a little bit of misogyny here or when we get to like after the twist reveal with like their beaten faces? <laughs> God, <laughs> what great options. Uh, well, you've queued us up. So why don't you yeah. start us in on it? 
So I feel like to the this is Loger directly addressing his criticisms, right? Uh, uh, his naysayers, you know, like, like why are you wanting to do this? Like, well, you're again. He said, ever since martyrs, people have called me a misogynist, and that's not the case. This this scene feels like him trying to uh, like wrestle with that, but it also happens so fast. Like, nothing really like fly. His answer is to keep him going insane. There you go. It's therapy for me. Yeah, yeah, and. Also, this isn't particularly revelatory. Like, we've seen a lot of horror films where the person says, oh, because I learned how to express myself or I used art as therapy to address my trauma. Like, I don't want to say that he's giving himself too much credit, but it feels like I could see some people looking at this film and saying, well, that's an excuse so that you can beat the shit out of these two girls for 80 of the 85 minutes. But sure, thanks for that one talk show scene where she gets to celebrate, oh, I become a successful author because if not, I go crazy. So I write about it. (laughs) Yeah, I sound really down on this. I actually did. I did like this movie, but I this is one of those times where the more I hear from Logier's yeah. perspective, I'm just like, I can see what you're saying, but it just sounds like bullshit. But, but that's okay. So th- this is going to be my cue then. Y'all, I'm going to reach out one more kind of lengthy quote, but it is about it is Logier on his use of graphic violence in films. But okay. um, th- that's that's the thing, right? Like, yeah, again, take this as a breezy 90 minute home invasion slasher. That's very simple. And like, you can enjoy this movie. But once you know all this stuff, it's like, oh, God, stop it. So, <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> Stop telling me things I don't want to know. Um, okay. So he says, Martyrs and Ghostland were written while I was in a state that demanded I invest myself completely alongside my characters, that I understand the tragedy of what they were going through, and that simply could not be anything fun. Uh, when I understood that Ghostland would be a portrait of a future writer, and that she was thus going to experience the darkness of what she will then use to fuel her work, I realized that this pain and darkness is also needed to be felt by the audience. It all came from the subject matter. I could not talk about someone transfiguring her pain if the audience doesn't feel it as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't understand what the film is about. If I had cut out the scene between Elizabeth and the ogre, or even made, and this scene, by the way, is the one where she pees on herself, which we'll get to in a bit, um, or even made it more fun and reduced the impact of the scene on the audience, I don't think people would understand what the film is about. The film is about resilience, transcendence. Oh, this is your quote, Joe. Mm -hmm. It's about taking the worst from your life experiences and turning it into gold, into something that makes you greater, stronger, something that defines your story. You could even make this the very definition of horror. People who don't like horror keep asking, what's the point? Isn't there enough violence in the world already without horror films adding to it? They simply don't understand that it's precisely one of the great joys of the genre itself. It's about taking in the worst of the human condition and making it into a piece of art, a creative work. It's a paradox that has always fascinated me about the genre. Yeah. So okay, so here's the thing. I I like that quote. I think it's really meaningful. I unfortunately don't see a lot of it reflected in this finished film. Mm-hmm. Because I can see the misogyny in the beatings, but then I don't see the transcendence part that he's talking about. And I think part of it is like this glimpse that we get of a future Beth who is happy and successful and has a family and is working to overcome her trauma. It's there, but then the twist unravels it by revealing it to be a falsehood. And I I still kind of read this as this will still be her projected right. future path. Like this is both fake, but also it will come to pass. Like that's what the end of the movie is when she sees Ghost Mom looking at the typewriter and she's like, I'm an author. 
Sure. <laughs> I think part of it is like we needed to see this scene repeated in reality or for her right. to actually do something more substantial at the end of the movie. And like this is an 85 minute movie. There was time. We could have added in like three to five extra minutes of like, yep. here are the sisters. They're happy. They're working with women who have been victims of domestic abuse or home invasions or something like the film just seems complacent to say, well, you know what we're doing. <laughs> and therefore, we we have justified our use of very graphic violence. Yeah. 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 Zero, do you find this film to be misogynistic? Yeah. <laughs> Zero's like this bitch just ran his mouth off for five minutes I'm just gonna be like yes yes it is yeah I, I mean part of me is like D- okay you just came up with this quote after the fact like after Ooh. doing this entire movie I cause I'm not getting that at all and I mean Joe I agree with everything you just said like I see it there at one point but then we wake up from the dream and this is probably why y'all are not a fan of the uh Psych, it didn't happen because um, mm-hmm. there could be, a, you know, a message or something in there. And then it just kind of, or not kind of, it completely invalidates it. And then I guess we're supposed to get this whole point from that one window scene with mom with the slashed throat in the window. Yeah. I guess it's supposed to bring us back to 30 minutes prior where we got this message. I don't know. The math is not yeah. for me. Well, and that's the thing. Like, for me, like, with like something like High Tension, yeah, the twist in that movie feels very gimmicky. It's like a gotcha type moment. You do have that a little bit with this reveal that we'll get, you know, 30 minutes from now. <laughs> but at the same time, because we still have more to do after, which I guess, I guess really, if I'm d- discussing this with myself, we, yes, the movie continues after the twist reveal, but the continued film we have is more violence against these girls. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think the big difference between the twist and high tension is that you're actually seeing a character talking to themselves. And the same with My Bloody Valentine, the remake, right? Like, that's actively trying to dupe us by saying, well, it can't be what you think it is because, look, they're talking to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, it's like, no, this is a fantasy. And and once the twist is revealed, it still makes sense. So there's enough foreshadowing to let us know, hey, this isn't real. But then... It doesn't invalidate it when we learn the truth. Unfortunately, it doesn't then justify the violence that happens afterwards because there's something about the chronology or, yeah, the fact that we have to undergo like a sustained, brutal series of beatings. And again, like really well shot, really well acted, Mm -hmm. but it starts to feel like meaningless violence without the murder's transcendence payoff. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, I hate saying the word necessary Mm -hmm. (laughs) whenever it comes to anything in art, but it it does kind of scream, is this all really necessary? (laughs) Yeah, I I think, you know, let's maybe pause this conversation and we'll take it up when we get to some of these other scenes, because I think maybe we can offer, I don't want to say like hypothetical solutions or alternatives, but there are a couple of points where I thought the film was going to move in a different direction. And then we just kind of stayed in the house and stayed with the beatings and so on right 
Okay, so after this talk show appearance, uh, this is where Beth gets a phone call from adult Vera, who is now played by Anastasia Phillips. We don't get to see her just yet, but basically she's distressed enough to say, okay, I need to come home. So she packs everything up. She goes back to Aunt Clarice's house, and this is where we get our reintroduction to Pauline and adult Vera, who is a very disturbed. She's still suffering a lot, and Pauline is hitting the bottle quite hard. She seems to think that nothing can be done for Vera and they've just both been kind of like living in this permanent state of reliving that one night over and over again. Beth starts to have all kinds of weird experiences. She dreams of she relives the attacks in some parts. Uh, she wakes up and she sees writing that says help me on the mirror. It's uh, just a touch of Helen shivers. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> And uh, Vera is very adamant about, like, she needs Beth to tell them, we don't know who, that she shouldn't be punished anymore. And she's speaking in kind of, like, weird weird sentences and statements that don't entirely make sense to us, but we write it off as thinking, oh, Vera's very traumatized. So these weird incidents do continue to add up until the point where one time we actually see Vera has been handcuffed to the bed, the door seems to shut and lock on its own, and then it sounds like she's being beaten. When Beth tries to get the key to unlock the cuffs or get the door open, she hears the voices of these two assailants saying that they've broken Vera and now they're going to try to break her. And then when Vera comes out, she's got broken fingers and her face is completely, totally fucked up. So it's now time to call the ambulance. Pauline goes off to do that, and then she just never comes back. And Beth falls asleep, and when she wakes up, all of a sudden, things have started to change. So she wakes up, and suddenly her face has been beaten and she's in a completely different dress and she hears a record of the teddy bear picnic and when she goes down into the basement vera orders her to come back to reality explaining that she's still here and this is when we get this reveal she is not an adult she has never been an adult this has all been a fantasy that she goes into in her mind to deal with the trauma they have never left the basement they're still being held prisoner it has been probably a couple of days. The time is really uh, not clear. Yeah. I like, like, I know it's 30 minutes that we spend in this fantasy world with them. I actually like a lot of this. Like, if anything, this gives me the most insight into Beth's mind. It, oh, sure. Yeah. It is a little hokey. It's a little one note. But, like, I, I, I don't feel like the movie's wasting my time with these scenes. Mm-hmm. I will say one of the scenes that I think is the most creepy and effective, like I really like that home invasion opening scene. Mm-hmm. And then I think the next big set piece for me is when Vera comes out of the handcuffs and she she's in the hallway and we just see her getting attacked seemingly out of thin air. And it looks similar to the kinds of things that we were seeing in paranormal activity movies and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I, I was even thinking because there's a part where she gets like slapped at the top of the stairs, and mm-hmm. um, it's very much like in Drive Me to Hell. Whenever uh, the opening scene, whenever the 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 doors open up, and like the medium lady just gets slapped twice really hard across the face by the invisible force. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's something terrifying, and and the title is a bit of a ruse, right? Because we keep hearing ghost land, so we think, oh, maybe the house has been infected by the ghosts of these killers or mm-hmm. the ghosts of past traumas or something like that. So that's totally what I was getting. At. Yeah. 
when I was trying to speculate like what was going on when Beth had returned back home uh, for the first time after her big tour or whatever, that's what I was thinking because mom is acting weird, mm-hmm. uh, sister Vera is acting weird, but this the incident is over, so everyone should be fine. Right. Beth makes the comment, oh, I didn't know you're drinking on that redneck beer or something like that now. Right. And I'm, you know, me trying to make sense of this, I'm thinking, oh, well, they've been possessed or something. Uh-huh. Especially since mm-hmm. there's ghosts in the title of like, okay, these killers have kind of taken on the bodies of her mother and sister and are living through them, I guess, question mm-hmm. mark? Yeah, it's the Frighteners, right? Yeah. So, so Zero, would you were you a bit underwhelmed with the eventual reveal? Because on, I'm not going to lie, the, the, what you just described, what both of you just described, does sound like a more interesting film. Um, a more complex film and a more interesting film. Not necessarily a better one, because I don't know. But I do think it's a more interesting concept. Um, I, I was fucking with the twist. I really was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the twist was definitely the, the best maybe only redeeming part for me personally. Okay. Um, I'm also not crazy about like paranormal uh, mm. horror. It's, mm. it's not the subgenre that I rock with the most, honestly. Yeah. So I was, I was leading myself down that path of, Oh, this is a, a possession kind of thing going on here. And when the twist finally happened, I was actually pretty, uh, pretty pleased with it because it wasn't mm. what I was expecting. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The most redeeming part for me personally. Nice. There we go. (laughs) It's always good when you can find a silver lining in something that you otherwise are not a huge fan of. (laughs) Yeah, that's where I was at. (laughs) I mean, I think even one of the things that I really appreciated was we get these quick shots of like paintings and we can clearly see that oh like the talk show host is from an advertisement and her husband and even that fucking child is they're actually paintings and Mm -hmm. you're just like oh okay so she dissociated she went into a kind of fantasy coma and or like a fugue state and she just used her visuals from around the basement to construct an entirely fictitious life of herself and you're like that she works. kaiser sos ate her imaginary world there we go yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah so this is when we shift gears so uh we are back with our two young girls so the adults have disappeared temporarily and an alarm sounds and this is when vera tells beth that she needs to hide in the closet and if she does end up getting taken upstairs that she should remain silent and don't react regardless of what he does. And at this point, we think that there's the fat man. We don't yeah. really know much about Candy Truck Woman. So so this is what Beth does. She hides in this closet, but then Candy Truck Woman grabs her. There's a scuffle. She gets knocked out. And when she wakens, she is being made up to look like a human doll. Yeah. Um, important to note too. So just to go back to the um, <laughs> the uh, the accident that uh, that uh, befell Miss Hickson here. The poster for this film is a uh, Beth's face. It's Amelia Jones's face, right? But it is a doll, like a porcelain doll that has been cracked, and there is a crack on her face that is mighty close to what Hickson had on her face from her actual wound. Yeah. So. A lot of people took that as like they were like being very insensitive towards her her injury. You know, I had this thought. I did have this thought as soon as I read the review of, or, or not the review. It was a review that had mentioned the injury, and then I mm-hmm. went on to Google it later. 
And I did look at the cover, and I said to myself, wow, that is insensitive as fuck. But also, if there was, you know, if this had become a lawsuit and it was a deal, I guess they could have used that as a cash grab for the film. Oh, capitalizing on the notoriety. Yeah, because, you know, bad press is still press at at the end of the day. Um, And now after hearing the quotes that you presented from the director, I I don't think that's like the longest suit. That would be really fucked up. But I I definitely, it it could be a conspiracy. I understand the conspiracy. There's something there. Um, But I will say, I've never watched this movie before. But I have seen, just like through my my travels of scrolling on Netflix uh, when I don't mm-hmm. want to watch. I've seen the cover before. Right. And the cover had turned me off just because the cover was giving it was giving paranormal. And like I said, that's it's not the subgenre of horror that I rock with the most. But yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised by it. So I mean, maybe you can't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> well, and, and nevertheless, I mean, I, I get people th- thinking it's insensitive to have that be the poster, but it does thematically make sense with the film. So you can't have that defense with it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I think it would have been easy enough to have like digitally tweaked it so that there weren't any cracks near where Hickson's injury was. Like right. that would have yeah. been a, a you know smarter slash classier way to go but um yeah i will say zero i definitely see what you're saying i will confess every time i have seen this poster what i always flash to is isabel Furman in orphan oh uh, yeah but that's just a real face instead of a doll cracked one yeah but i think of like when she makes herself up so that she can seduce peter sarsgaard oh. mm-hmm. yeah yeah there's that i will say i i prefer this twist as opposed to the orphan twist. Oh, really? Interesting. Honestly, I yeah. love that orphan twist. But that movie goes for it. Like, that movie knows it's ridiculous and leans into it. Yeah. That is also a, a, a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> because you could argue that movie leans into camp a little bit. And yes. this movie refuses to do that. Yeah, this movie takes itself very seriously, which, you know, hearing Loger's arguments makes sense. Like, he is trying to make a statement about why this violence needs to be in here, but it also, therefore, makes it an ordeal to get through. Whereas with Orphan, like, you know, you're you're watching her do these things, and it's delightful, because you just keep thinking, <laughs> But she's not who she says she is. <laughs> she's a 33-year-old lady. <laughs> Spoilers for Orphan, sorry. <laughs> Go back and listen to the previous episode. Exactly. Okay, so after she is made up, Beth is placed in a room filled with dolls, and she is posed just so. And she has enough time to steal a hairpin from a doll before the fat man comes in. And then she has to watch him molest this doll and burn its fingers, and she kind of knows, oh shit, this is what's coming for me if I don't either get out of this or if he maybe doesn't notice me. I was so confused with what he was saying. So I, I thought, okay, he 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 fingers this doll doesn't like something about it which is why he burns its hand off Mm -hmm. so i just thought okay cool this is this is like a routine but like it's not gonna be the same for everything but this seems to be what he does to every doll yeah he fingers them and then he burns their hand off and then well we don't know what happens after that kicks them to the curb yeah yeah or or murders i I don't know what happens here i'm i'm intrigued like i i honestly want to know but i yeah that i don't know this is just weird well and 
again, this is, I think, part of the problem is that this seems to be just a collection of either weird fetishes and or what would be most disturbing to think could happen to a young girl. So it's like, well, she could get molested. She could get her hand burned off. uh, She could pee on herself. It's just like, let's do a series of humiliations. I will tell y'all, and look, I will cop to this. I am a person who does look to be shocked. And that's the point where I go look at snuff films or whatever. But, like, I get, like, a thrill when I see something in a horror film. I'm like, oh, I haven't seen that before. But, like, usually it's something that's, like, violent. Right. I'm using this term lightly. I really, A, the shot when he's holding her by the leg. And she's clearly held up by wires. But, like, Mm -hmm. that shot I thought was really, really cool. And I liked, in the effort of what the film was trying to do, the scene of her peeing herself. It was so upsetting to me and so distressing. Like, I, whatever effect this was trying to have on the audience, it did have that effect on me. Okay, I'm very glad that you said that. (laughs) Because it makes me feel better a little bit. A lot of the abuse in this film, I, I think, was kind of like, you know, Cardi B in um, The View or whatever the hell that was. Like, what was the reason? Like, that's yeah. kind of how I was feeling. Um, but that, that one that one angle shot where it's like the top shot and you can see yes. that she pees herself and then the pee like runs down her face. Mm-hmm. And it's it's humiliating and it's sad and it that one stuck. So I'm glad that you said that because I don't have to say it and then feel like I'm a sick fuck for saying it. <laughs> but I I agree. But there's other things that I would say if you do point them out in this film that I'm gonna call you a sick fuck for real. Alright. <laughs> Zero's got standards. <laughs> But you know, no, I, I, I'm honestly surprised to hear you say that about this scene, but I'm also glad to hear you say that about this scene. So look, common ground. Common ground. <laughs> Wait, why are you surprised, though? Uh, I, I honestly think that this is probably the most, mm. I mean, I know it's not violent, but, well, it is violent, but it's not like she's not getting beat up here. Right. I don't know. I find this to be, yeah, like you said, it's humiliating. And so I almost feel like it's the most degrading for this character. So right. I, again, I'm hesitant. To say I liked it, but like it's a thing where it's like, g- given what you've said about your thoughts on other parts of the films, I'm a bit surprised this didn't enter the territory of like unnecessary, uh, gratuitous, like like, like uh, humiliation or instead of violence. I don't know. It was giving pure fear, and you All know right. you, you could get smacked around a bunch, and you know you can show a bruise or a black eye or like welts or whatever. But I don't know. Something about this was like, if I was there, I would I would definitely have pee running down my face as well. <laughs> All right. Love a good pee scene. Yeah. All right, we'll look for those. <laughs> this is the wrong kind of water sports. Yeah. God. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I had to take it there. Okay. That's but I'm, I'm actually very much in agreement with both of you. I think the reason that it works is not just because it's shocking and it feels like something that we don't often see, but even just watching him strongman lift her up <gasps> by the ankle with one arm it immediately establishes the stakes because he is clearly so strong and she feels so powerless in this moment, right? So I I think you're right, Trace. It's doing exactly what the scene needs to do, but it doesn't need to resort to the kind of typical violence. Like later on when we see him start to hit her, I don't want to say I tuned it out because obviously I was still feeling it, but right. it felt so conventional that I just thought, oh, good. So we're doing this shit. Fuck. Like, yeah. I've seen this a million times before. Whereas this felt 
like scary violence that helped me to understand how much danger she was in without having to resort to like punching her in the fucking face. I actually like what you mean. Like, no, it's it's like, yeah, it's I'm not tuned out, but my eyes almost glaze over once we have scenes of them getting beat when it's like, okay, like I'm just going to watch 60 seconds of them getting beat. Like, yeah. I get the point, but it's like, yeah, it's like, I, again, I liken it to uh, a really long landscape shot in a movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think back to Martyrs, right, where what is the image that always stands out the most to me? And that's when we see her get flayed, Mm -hmm. not just because it's not something that we see all the time, but also because it is this, it's almost like a pinnacle moment, right? It's where the film is achieving what it's trying to communicate or what it's trying to do or evoke in an emotional component but it's doing it in this really striking way. Like there's beatings in Martyrs and I feel the same way about those that I do about these ones where mm-hmm. I just like, when we have to see the girls get beaten on the mattress, I'm just like, okay, like I've, I've seen this. Yep. I know what domestic abuse, I know what men hitting women looks like. And it, oh God, it sounds shitty now that I'm saying it out loud, but I do, I do tune out. I do glaze over with it because I'm desensitized to it because I've seen it in every fucking cop drama. Yeah. I've seen it in every Lifetime movie. It doesn't land that way anymore. Yeah, but this scene does. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, okay, so thankfully we don't have to see too much of Bess ordeal. So she she does start to get molested, but because she's got the hairpin, she's able to get him in the back of the neck. And then as a result, she's able to kind of get away briefly so well okay so we also have this moment that we're all he he, we're in his head for a moment where all the dolls start calling Mm -hmm. like talking down to him calling him a fucking pig that they're gonna kill him yeah which i was like well that's an interesting choice (laughs) to do that this is the only time in the film that we actually get anything from either of the two villains perspectives and we are not afforded this option from the candy truck lady. So no. I I want to say that she, they, excuse me, mm-hmm. deserve this little bit of just insight. Yeah. Right? More, much more than the fat man, just because I, I'm feeling like the fat man was the main antagonist of this movie. And then the candy truck woman was just kind of supporting. I, I really still don't really know why they were there it's a motherly role i i guess yeah a motherly role but i i wanted to know why why they were allowing this why you know how how are they as sick as a fuck as the fat man is well well uh, well well, but, um, but some people have read this as almost childish like not infantilization but like stunted development whether you want to read that as either mental illness or mentally disabled. And and that's why this character is so interested in dolls because they're fixed at a young age and they treat human beings as dolls and they get angry at them. But she's asking why, why does yeah. the candy truck woman like allow this? Why does she facilitate yeah. this? Because she, she's yeah. the one that also like, d- like she's the one that, like, well, she comes in after because it's always the fat man that goes in first to get the mom. Right. So, yep. And she's just kind of facilitating this whole thing. I think without that little cut scene where all the dolls are, you know, saying, fuck you, nobody likes you, you're never right. going to be whatever, go go 
hide in a corner somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I, I could have gotten that without that scene. I could have understood mm. that this character is troubled without. I mean, they, right. they do a very good job of depicting that non, non-verbally. But, but why the candy truck woman? They needed a little bit more explanation. I mean, I don't know if I were to have gotten that explanation. I probably would have been more pissed than I am now. But right. I, I don't know. Just in terms of writing, I guess we got a little bit for the fat man and nothing for the candy truck woman. But the candy <laughs> yeah. truck woman didn't have any nonverbal signals that really signified that this person is messed up. Right. Yeah, like there's no reason why... Like, we know for a fact that the candy truck woman can say something because we hear them say, you know, like, we got your sister and we're going to get you next. It's frustrating in a way it would almost be better if they were nonverbal so that there wasn't an excuse for, like, why don't they say something or why don't we get this kind of insight or rather, why do we get it for the fat man but not them? Why are they almost a second tier villain in this movie? I don't understand the logistics of this character. And I find the more that we're talking about it, the more frustrated I become with it. Cause I'm just like, why then? Why did you make this character who they are and then do absolutely nothing with it? Well, that's the thing, right? Cause like, if you just watched this movie last night, you know, to talk about it on a podcast for two hours, you could, you don't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking of this because we mentioned this in our insidious chapter two or part two editorial from back mm-hmm. in the day trace. We, we talk about a deliberate decision was made to include this character, include this backstory. We didn't think that that was well done back then, but we thought about how upsetting it would be if you were a member of the trans community and you go into this insidious film thinking, oh, I'm going to get a backstory for this ghost. Oh, fuck. It's a trans killer. Like, bam, just yep. has to hit you in the face. Like, cool. That is really fucking annoying because I've seen this a million times. And I'm thinking if you go into this movie as a trans audience member, you're going to get that experience all over again, but you don't even get the benefit of a backstory. Like, Initially, I came into this recording thinking I didn't have that big of an issue with it because we (laughs) couldn't decide whether this is a trans woman or this is just a man who's cross-dressing and the movie doesn't care, so why should we? And the more that we talk about it, the more I'm like, no, I'm really fucking mad now because (laughs) I'm just like, you could have made this character anybody and yet you made a deliberate decision to make it a trans woman and then do nothing with it and to give this person nothing and I just don't understand the thought process except to say, oh, you just don't care. And that's shit. But that's why, and look, we have said multiple times it's unforgivable that this came out in 2018. I'm also borderline unforgiving of any journalist who talked to him who didn't ask him these questions. It's a very weird thing, hey? Because, no, because again, like at that time, like again, like our, our community of journalists, like we were, we, we knew this shit. Mm-hmm. This is not, this is discourse for us. So I'm just, I'm surprised that no one asked this man about this whenever he was doing it. Yeah. Either that or they were told that they were not allowed to ask and he would not answer. Maybe. Maybe, Maybe. that is the case. Who knows? <laughs> but I, that, that, that's speculating like too further in a way. Like we don't, yes, we don't know. Now, now we're taking it. Now we're creating our own fantasy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, well, that's okay because we have two very overt Stephen King references coming up, which again... <laughs> <laughs> makes it all the funnier that we don't that it's not Stephen King in this movie because she bashes him over the head with a typewriter which is a straight out of misery reference yeah 
So he is unconscious. And then we have the candy truck woman using a sledgehammer on the door, which is a, sh- yeah. a shining, shining reference. <laughs> which again, so you're doing Lovecraft instead of King, but doing King homages? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yes. So the candy truck woman is breaking in using aforementioned uh, sledgehammer. So Beth ends up faking her escape by throwing the typewriter at the window, making it seem like she's gone out. And instead, she hides in this mirror space with the jump scare doll. Okay. So I did like this sequence. Oh, yeah. This is great. <laughs> it's stupid, right? Like, we all know it's stupid. But it still works because the groundwork was laid with this doll and also because it it's not like one time. It happens three times where she's like, shut that fucking doll up. The second she opens the mirror and her foot hits the floor, I'm literally, I'm on my couch, feet up on, like up against my chest, just going, you, no, bitch, <laughs> stay in there. Yeah, I mean, poor Beth at this point, she, like, you can tell that she's working on frayed nerves and adrenaline only, but uh, yeah, it's like, slow it down, make a plan, think about what you're going to do here. Yeah, exactly. But no, all this is, I mean, up until they escape, like, it's pretty much, yeah, we're sneaking around the house, hoping mm-hmm. like cl- a lot of close calls, things like that. All of this to me is very effective. I think it's very well done. Yeah, and then when they do finally escape, it looks gorgeous, right? So they're mm-hmm. running through the night. We've got this urgent yet fairy tale esque piano score guiding them. They're making their way through the woods, and then dawn breaks, and we're back in this field that we maybe do or do not recognize from the opening. We see mm-hmm. the road, and then this is when the state cruiser drives by and they begin screaming. And in any other horror film, it would just drive by and they would be fucked. And instead, they actually stop. And we get this woman come out. And yeah, just in case you weren't paying attention, this is where Vera confirms it was two fucking men in a candy truck. So, But, okay. I do feel like we belabored the point a little bit. So we move on. But for a good thing... We do get him playing, himming Logier, playing with this a little bit because we have the cruiser and we have in the background two headlights arrive. Mm-hmm. And all of us think, oh, that is the candy truck. Yeah. It is not. It is not. <laughs> no, because the, the candy truck woman is just coming from across the field with a gun. She just blows these state troopers away. Are you, were you just not just like gutted? Like, oh my, because here's the thing. When they escaped the first time, I checked it. I was like, oh my God, there's still 20 minutes left. Like, there's mm-hmm. no way they're out of the woods yet. <laughs> I mean, they're out of the woods, but like not out of the woods, proverbial woods. <laughs> so I'm I'm interested, Zero, to hear if you were kind of on the same wavelength as me. I thought that this is where the film was actually going to take a turn and we were going to go back to that highway horror, or I didn't think we would go back to the house. I thought the film would shift locations and do something different. Okay, I was 100% expecting a chase scene there because the first scene in the beginning when they're like driving side by side, which is like very fast and furious, I guess. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, now is the, the time where we're going to get that chase scene that we were promised low-key in the beginning. Hey. Again, I was wrong, but that's fine. <laughs> Sarah's like no I'm really fine with it it's okay it is okay I love when I'm wrong with my speculation because I you know I think I'm all that and then I'm not and I'm like ooh become a little bit wiser love it (laughs) 
so I'm curious then, does the next part work for the two of you? Because the twist is long past. So when Beth goes back into her kind of fugue state and she's back to successful future author at a party and then we get this conversation with Lovecraft, like... I don't know. I kind of looked at the runtime and I said, so 85 minutes and we're going to do a little bit of this. Like, I I get the point. It's about whether or not she will go back to her sister or she will stay in the fantasy where she is safe. Get it. I think it drags. I think that it's actually unnecessarily long. So, okay, I got I got final quote from Logier. Final. No, I know. I know. I know. I know. But here you go. The scene with Lovecraft is something we've all dreamt about when we were young teenagers, back when we had idols and heroes, which was my case. I dreamt a thousand times that Argento or Carpenter had appeared to me and said, Pascal, you've made it. You've found your voice. You're no second-rate copy of me anymore. All my short films were second-rate copies of this or that, a copy-paste element from people that I loved and imitated. We've all been there at age 12 or 13. It takes a lot of time to find your own style. It takes a lifetime. We gradually develop our own world, and we start to feel like the right teller of these stories. The scene with Lovecraft meant a lot to me, though it was, of course, one of the scenes my producer wanted to have cut out. They didn't think it served the story too much. Of course, that scene was one of my intimate reasons for making this film, which is why I left it in. Okay. I think this guy needs just to write Lovecraftian fan fiction (laughs) and just keep it fucking moving. He should have listened to his producer. That man knew right, because one, the prosthetics had me shuddering on that man. I didn't even realize that it was Lovecraft at first. I was just like, why does that man's chin look like that? Second off, I don't think it really added much to like uh, this message that he was trying to portray portray in the the previous quote that you had recited Mm -hmm. it was just like okay he's giving lovecraft is is finally here sure he's your idol he's giving you everything that you wanted to hear just so you can wake up and not pursue your writing career but do something completely different that's necessary so the way you can if you want to keep this scene in the way you fix Mm -hmm. it this scene doesn't end the movie, but it ends the present day scene. So we they get they get they get taken away in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. We have Beth pass out in the ambulance, and then she goes into this fantasy. And when she wakes up, she is an adult. She is a successful author, having in her dreams gotten Lovecraft's approval of her work. Yeah, like this meeting with Lovecraft. I think it can work, or like yeah, meeting your idol, realizing that you become the thing you most wanted, but she hasn't become that, and like. I get that the whole thing is like, oh, in her fantasy, this is what she would most desire, right? right? Her mom is there, the state troopers are back in their fancy dress, and yeah, we've we've got Lovecraft giving her what she wants, but then, I don't know, it feels like there needs to be some kind of end parallel where it's not ghost mom gesturing at the typewriter, maybe she has a dream that ends the movie where it is Lovecraft saying like, you dreamt about me once, but... And now you've well, actually set out what you wanted to accomplish. But the way it's placed, it's almost like getting Lovecraft's approval It's what is what lets her come out of her fugue state, uh, out of her disassociative state. So on that level, then, getting Lovecraft's approval is tied with her... I don't know, like deciding to go back and save her sister. Yeah, like she's gotten everything she needs out of this fantasy. Like, there's nothing left for her in this fantasy world anymore because she's gotten what she wants. Which uh, I mean, how I, does that I'm come tr- up 
the hell? That doesn't even make s- I like. I'm not. I'm not questioning no, no, no. you. I'm questioning the logic of that. If that is yeah. the case, well, I, I I don't know if that's the intent, but that to me is what it comes across as. Like what it comes across is she got Lovecraft's approval. Cool. She doesn't need this fantasy world anymore. Now she can come back to normal and save her sister. But right. Again, given with what themes Logier is trying to put in here, that doesn't make sense to have that here and have that be the reason for this scene. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because I I think it would have been more successful if he had have listened to his producer and just we see Vera in the dress like she's fucked up and she's wearing this haggard gown like usual and she just runs through the party and then beth has to follow her and decide do i stay with ghost mom a la happy death day to you or do i go back to the world that i have to be living in and face the reality and the consequences mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so anyway that's what she does uh bust through the mirror and then we get some pretty brutal beatings but uh thankfully We've got Mirrodal to distract the fat man long enough for Beth to go in and make a, a reasonable attempt to defend Vera against the candy truck woman. And basically, they, they delay the inevitable because the state trooper has managed to convey, oh, hey, it's all going down at Aunt Clarice's house. So some new dude shows up and blows both of our villains away. Yep. And that's really it. Like, they get wheeled out, mom's in the window, typewriter's there, they feel good, and the movie is over. Well, yeah, except that she's not an, she's not an athlete. It's important <laughs> that we have this EMT be like, oh, you're so brave and so strong, you must have been an athlete, and, you know, so we can do the, no, I write stories. <laughs> okay. I'm screaming. <laughs> that yes that is ghostland everybody so okay zero why don't you give us your final thoughts on this film give it give us your conclusion after this discussion okay well my conclusion is i i might be maybe like 30 percent more angry with the film than i was before we started this conversation <laughs> oh, no. uh, given specifically the quotes and what the director was thinking when he created this film um mm-hmm. i don't like it I also have this kind of second wind of, uh, let's see. So our director wanted to, to create a story that kind of mimicked his experience with the sibling, correct? Yeah. Right. Okay. So this makes me a little bit more, I don't want to say upset, but peeved, I guess is the word. I have a huge soft spot for stories that connect to siblings um, even better if it's two sisters. I have a sister who's very close to my age, uh, which is why Raw resonated with me so heavily because it's about mm. uh, the bonding of two sisters. I'll even get cracked up in, in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Gamora and Nebula fighting and you know, <laughs> the whole sister drama thing. Sibling ties are like significantly, uh, I don't want to say stronger, but a little bit more deep-rooted than just your average couple, partner, whatever. And so I, I guess I was kind of projecting what I wanted to see in this film as a, you know, two sisters really fucking duking it out, getting through a, a traumatic time together, like I saw with Raw and, and countless others, uh, right. with this, this kind of sister dynamic. And what I was given was really not what I wanted at all. And ay ay ay. And then there's the Lovecraft <laughs> thing, and then there was this villain thing. And I guess, <laughs> I, I guess I'm just kind of projecting what I wanted to see in a film like this. 
Yeah. But I'm really grasping and, and holding on to the twist that I actually really freaking liked. <laughs> was not exposed, expecting a, a sort of paranormal-ish film. So I'm just going to focus on that. Hey, maybe I'll give it a second watch. Maybe I won't. But there was tons of, uh, of content to talk about here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Joe, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm of two minds. I gave this a four, and after this conversation, I definitely got to drop it down from that. But mm. the four was on how effective it shot and the production design and even the performances by our two young actresses, yeah. because I do think that they're doing genuinely good work. I saw a number of people say, you know, these characters are slight, and I would say that applies not just to the sisters, unfortunately, but to our villains, to this narrative i i can see what he's trying to go for and i can see the connection to murders but especially when you compare it to that previous film there's just so much more meat on those bones and this feels like a watered down version that is just not as successful and some really poorly thought out components so it's disappointing because you're right trace you've said it a couple times if this was just a home invasion mm -hmm. where these sisters had to fight back I think we'd be having a very different conversation, but then you add in these problematic elements and then you add in like the intentionality and you compare it to murders and the film just doesn't stand up. So yeah. it's rough because like I didn't mind watching this movie, but mm -hmm. I get more angry the more we talk about it. I think that's totally fair. And it's interesting because I had this at a three and a half when I went back and checked my letterbox and I upped it to a four. Um, last night after my viewing and yeah I feel like I'm lowering it a bit and like mm -hmm. basically for me I agree with about 90% of what y'all we have discussed on this episode about this movie and I do think that his quotes actually make it worse yeah because the thing is I can take a lot of these one-dimensional aspects a lot of these uh these non-explanations for things and just be like honestly I just don't think he knew what he was doing right the problem is with his quotes that kind of gets <laughs> like rid oh of he that. did know what he was doing it's just bad <laughs> yes that being said will i watch this again and can i watch this again and choose to eject all of that from my mind i yeah. can do that but i wouldn't fault anyone for not being able to or not wanting to do that like sure. uh i think yeah watching this is a 70s almost grindhousey type movie like i can get a lot of enjoyment from like you know my my not torture porn needs, but just like, you know, my, my, my really kind of viscerally upsetting needs. It just so happens to be a movie where this director is kind of an idiot. Right. So I, I still like this movie quite a bit, but I'm really happy that we got to have this talk about it because I think, I mean, I'm sure a podcast has done it before, but I mean, you know, I think given like with the controversies and like, like all what the reviews have said, I think it needs to go deeper than just problematic trans killer, you know? Yeah, it, it was one of the things that I kept sort of running my head into a wall about was that there were a ton of these sort of like one or two sentence statements where it was like, oh, but the misogyny, oh, but the transphobia. Yeah. And I was like, but this is a review. So a lot of people were like, I don't want to talk about the ending. I don't want to talk about the twist. I don't want to reveal things. And this is a movie that I think can only benefit from editorials as opposed to traditional reviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and also, also, whenever I read misogyny in a review of a horror film, I always kind of, I'm kind of like, oh, like, I, I know it's a problem, but that also seems to be a very go-to critique from critics about the horror genre when it doesn't always fit. So I think that having a discussion about what makes this misogynistic is more, is vital as opposed to just a review where it's like, it's misogynistic because there's violence against women, you know? 
Yeah, and directed by a man. Like yes. to me, the the biggest issue with the violence in this movie is that it's directed to young girls. Like this isn't teenagers. This isn't college age girls. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I think makes it uncomfortable. And yeah, you could say Logier has some some weird ideas. You know, like not everything is handled well in that regard. No, mm-hmm. you know, I'll just leave it there. Yeah, no, I, uh, y'all, we, we we have we have discussed the fuck out of this movie. So, <laughs> so listeners, I, I'm intrigued. What are your thoughts on this? Um, if, if obviously we're dealing with a lot of sensitive issues, please be polite in the comments and the tweet threads, whatever the fuck you're doing. But we'll leave it at that. So, <laughs> before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Zero, first of all, thank you so much for coming on to this, and let people know where they can find you on social media. Thanks again, guys, for having me on the podcast. That was so great. And uh, for the people, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch at IDKGravity. And you can also follow my podcast with Sheree the Slayer and Brother Ghoulish at Blurdy Massacre on Instagram and also Twitter. Um, well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Uh, shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com if you have any fan mail or hate mail for us. <laughs> uh, find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel uh, that has interviews and monthly hangouts. And finally, if you want to chat with other listeners, join our Facebook Horror Queers group. Uh, if you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Um, we're almost done with May, but before we get into June, you know, if you go subscribe today, uh, you'll have access to all of our episodes on uh, horror movies that make us cry, Shudder's new controversial zombie-ish movie, The Sadness, uh, the remake of Firestarter, an audio comedy commentary on 28 weeks later for its 50th anniversary and our final episode of may which will come out uh soon is our episode on alex garland's men so which i've heard is amazing or divisive but amazing (laughs) (laughs) Uh, isn't that the name of the game yeah but joe um the name of the game well we're not out of controversy yet what are we checking out next week (laughs) i was gonna say yeah let's uh keep those content warnings on topic so next week we are going to be discussing uh i don't know trace are we saying it's camp are we saying it's offensive we're definitely gonna say people need to steal themselves there is sexual assault in this movie but this was a you pick we're gonna be talking about perdita durango yes and this is very much a joe is throwing me a bone here pick everyone so this is not really a horror film it's more of a it is in the vein of freeway where it's kind of this uh exploitation exploitation uh there yeah sexual assault we have rape we have rape victims baby fetuses being used to make hand lotion a lot of cocaine (laughs) lot oh yeah there's the entire plot of the movie revolves around a truck full of baby fetuses uh okay (laughs) this is directed by alex de la iglesias if you've checked out hbo's 30 coins it is that same director and we have 1997 versions of rosie perez and javier bardem and let me it's on shutter by the way and it's uncut form because it's one of those films that um, was edited for a very very long time until recently so make of that something for the production history i know (laughs) i i love this movie i think it's great but yes please adhere to all content warnings this will not be an easy watch for some people Boy, just uh, nothing but controversy these last couple of weeks. So yeah, uh, folks, join us next week for Dita Durango. Until then, we can cross out uh, Incident in a Ghostland. Indeed, and cross out Horror Queers.